This is tape number 23 of Dr. Joel Hunter's series, Faith from Heaven to Earth. The subject of his message is faith and friendship. And from the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter's text is found in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. And it reads as follows. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. This I command you, that you love one another. And now, let's join in for praise and worship, followed by Dr. Joel Hunter's message, Faith and Friendship, message number 23 of the series, Faith from Heaven to Earth. The subject for today is friendship. How God builds faith in friendship. We begin by presenting to you a little uh, of the theater arts. Some of you uh, know that one of the symbols of the theater arts uh, is two masks together. One laughing, one crying. Uh, representing comedy and tragedy. Uh, it is very appropriate uh, that that entire symbol would be attached to today's television situation comedies because they are both funny and sad. Today, we're going to pre present to you a scene that could very well be a scene in the very popular uh, series, Friends. Uh, whether or not you have uh, viewed this program before, uh, you will recognize that the characters uh, are very um, accepting, very clever, very funny, and very empty. If faith is the, uh, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, we give you uh, the direction uh, that we give practically before every uh, skit that we do. And that would be that you would look for what is missing in this scene. Does your boyfriend know? He is my boyfriend. <laughs> okay, just uh, just pretend I'm serving you so that the manager doesn't yell at me for spending time with my friends. Rachel, you are serving us. Oh, and can we get some more cream, too? Oh, that's good. That's good. All right. 
So, what are you talking about? That we need some more cream. Oh, don't you hate the service here? <laughs> cream. Okay, I need some advice. Yeah. Where are you going to get it? <laughs> I'm just serving the cream to the customers. Serving cream like a waitress to oh, the customers. I don't take cream. Oh, 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 but I'd like to see it if you have it. <laughs> okay, listen. Okay, I think I've made up my mind. I'm going to move in with Evan. <gasps> I wouldn't get any exercise at all. Joey! Hey, Joey! You're not going to believe this. Last night when I left here, I got a ticket for drinking coffee in my car. Guess I was in a no-perking zone. <laughs> so what's going on? What's new? Evan, I'm going to move in with my boyfriend. That's great. Why are you calling me Evan? You guys, look, I... I was looking for a little help here, some advice, some support. You're right, Monica. We are not helping. Some advice, guys. Yeah. <coughs> what? What? I'm going to read the paper. Oh, Rachel! Rachel! Well, I read a, a quiz in Cosmo magazine. We could, we could take the quiz 
match with you and see if you are compatible. Cosmo, okay. well, well, that's a great I, idea. I always good. consult my crystals when I have a big decision to make. Yeah. Crystals, crystals are good. I know this guy you could call. He's helped me a lot. One nine hundred psychic friends. Advice? What advice? Monica, I've got advice for you. Those old standards, those old values, they don't apply to us. Those high moral and ethical standards, noble, upright women who uh, are cherished, admired, even I don't know, uh, admired and uh, by their men. I mean, women don't want that. You're going to get what you want. I'm proud of you. I, I'm still bothered by all this. Maybe I should talk to a pastor. Talking <laughs> <laughs> oh, crazy. <laughs> Wacky talk. Oh, that's a good one. Well, you guys want to go back to the apartment? Oh, what for? Sure. Well, we can have some coffee and talk. Oh, great. Oh, that's yeah, great. That's good. Right. I can't get enough coffee. Sure. Let's go. One of the reasons that I like uh, today's television is that uh, for someone who looks uh, at it through the eyes of Scripture, there's just absolutely a clear demonstration of the moral bankruptcy uh, of today's situations. Um, I'd like to uh, define uh, in a very short period of time the difference between a world friendship and a Christian friendship uh, because the difference is quantum. First of all, let me uh, say to you, I believe that there has been a significant difference in the last hundred years in the way we form friendships in this country, uh, culturally speaking. There are three books that could help you with that. Uh, uh, none of them are particularly uh, Christian in their approach, uh, although they come to the same conclusions that Scripture does. One is uh, called The Image by Daniel Borston. Daniel, Daniel Borston is one of the most brilliant historians in, uh, in the country. He used to be the uh, uh, librarian for the Library of Congress. Uh, in this book called The Image, his thesis is that uh, people are no longer uh, developing a true picture of reality. What they are developing instead is the image that they want to present to other people so that other people will relate to that image instead of who they really are. The second book, uh, some of you may have read, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey. In that book, Stephen Covey said that there was a dramatic change, uh, especially after World War I, uh, in the way that people developed themselves. He said they switched from developing their character to developing their personalities so that there wasn't the same kind of effort develop, uh, going into the building up of what a, who a person was, just how a person presented himself or herself. The third book um, is a more recent book, as a matter of fact, just out, uh, Philip Cushman, called Constructing the Self, Constructing America. In this book, it is his theme that is similar to the other two books that I have just uh, told you about, that uh, it was really uh, more in the 1890s that people in this country uh, began to uh, pay attention uh, 
to how they could be accepted by other people and how they can make a name for themselves on the terms that they wanted to make it. He said that when people began to move from the farm into the big city, two things happened. First of all, one of them was that there you were surrounded by people who didn't know you all your life anymore. You see, those of you who come from a farming community or a small community <clears throat> know uh, that uh, you can't be too fake in a small town because people have watched you grow up. And they know who you are, and so don't try and fool them. Um, it's not that way in a big city. The other thing uh, that he says is that uh, there was a sense in wanting to be a part of a community uh, that happened so naturally on the farm. There was a sense of wanting to make a name for yourself so that you would at least be recognized as you moved into the city. And so therefore, you developed again this uh, personality or this way of becoming known and your way of becoming known was, was uh, correspondent to uh, what the economists would call the market forces. You, you looked at what people were looking for, uh, or at least a segment of people that you thought you could relate to, and you made yourself into what they wanted so that you could be accepted by them. Now, I agree with uh, the general thesis of all three of these books. I believe that we live in a culture that very much dwells on our ability to be accepted by other people and we make that synonymous with friendship. That is to say, as long as other people will accept us, and we define that, by, define that by the way, of not disagreeing with us or not confronting us or being supportive of who we are and what direction we want to go, then we believe we've made a friend or we have a peer group. Probably uh, the, the uh, scariest paradigm of that direction is the modern-day talk show. Now, I don't watch very many of these, but I have seen enough of them to uh, see uh, a, a general um, uh, presentation on a talk show. What happens is that people, uh, for for purposes of, of wanting to present themselves, is the only thing I can figure out, come on and in the most demeaning fashion, present to a national audience the most private and surprising and unbelievable um, um, uh, pictures of themselves. And they go before the studio audience and they vie for applause. Applause meaning we accept you. Now, how you get applause on one of these talk shows is that you come on and you say, this is the self I have constructed and you can like it or not, but I've got to be honest with myself, I've got to be true to myself, and that's who I am. And every time somebody says that, no matter what precedes that saying, you will get applause. Because the general mentality of America is they've constructed themselves then they're being honest, and that is the highest possible virtue. And I don't care how sideshowish these things get. I mean, I, I watched one this week with a 13-year-old boy dressed up as a girl, his mother sitting beside him, crying her eyes out. Uh, and, and, you know, him saying, this is who I am. At 13 years old, this is who I am, this is who I've always been, so on and so forth. His mother just, just crying her eyes out. And then they've added a new twist to the talk shows. 
they bring on a professional psychologist for a few minutes. If you, if, if you can not only buy the common people uh, with fame, you can buy the professionals with fame also. How anybody would degrade their ministry uh, by going on and trying to pretend to address an issue in a matter of four or five minutes is beyond me, but they come on. And, of course, the professional psychologists say, well, if that's how you feel and you're being honest with yourself, uh, let's certainly develop and go with it and so on and so forth. You get the picture here. What is absolutely absent in this picture is any correspondent reference to a higher reference point. Something that is above how you feel or above what you think you ought to construct in your own life and would hold you accountable to that. And any kind of, the second thing is, any kind of consistent confrontation on that basis. In other words, if you are who you think you are, if you are who you want to be, who am I to argue with that? And that is the steady diet of the American people now. So, when we come down to it, the definition of friendship then, or the definition of popularity, is acceptance no matter what. And, and, and the definition of being uh, correct is the avoidance of conflict no matter what. Some time ago, uh, I read a uh, uh, wonderful parable written by Wes Seliger in a book called One Inch from the Fence. This is an older book. But he, uh, in his imagination, constructed this little town, uh, called it Pleasantville. He said, once upon a time, there was a village by the name of Pleasantville. Everybody in that village was wonderfully nice to one another. Nobody ever said a sad word. Nobody ever confronted one another, so on and so forth. Uh, And in that village, there was a dentist. His name was Painless Percy. Painless Percy's dentist office was uh, was a little bit out of the ordinary. I mean, uh, you didn't go in and have to be afraid of of any kind of uh, uh, personal invasion uh, or uncomfortable circumstances. His his waiting room, uh, you know was melodiously floating with notes of the blue Danube and cast in uh, hazy uh, blue lights and, and so on and so forth. And when you got into the actual um, uh, clinical examining room, you didn't see any of those uh, 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 pain-threatening devices, no, no long arms with belts and, and, and uh, 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 sharp objects on a tray and, and sterile needles and all of those. No, 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 you didn't see any of that. What you saw was that there was a chair, and, and if painless person was going to clean your teeth, he, he, he did it with just a real soft camel hair brush. But his favorite, his, his best treatment was gum massage. He just was real good during soft music with a very soothing voice at massaging your gums. You never had to be afraid of being hurt by painless Percy. Well, one day, Another dentist moved into town, Dr. Jim. Dr. Jim set up his office, and for weeks he had no patients uh, whatsoever. But finally, <clears throat> one young man <clears throat> by the name of Joe got, uh, uh, got uh, out of a, uh, or didn't get into painless Percy quickly enough, and, and he felt like he needed to go to the dentist, so he set up an appointment with Dr. Jim. And, and he came in, and, and he went into the room with Dr. Jim, and, and he noticed all kinds of uh, threatening, hideous devices. He, he looked at this thing with, uh, 
with uh, belts and, and pulleys. And, and he said, what is that thing? And Dr. Jim said, that's a drill. And he said, oh my goodness, what's it for? And Dr. Jim says, it's to drill out decay. He said, oh my goodness. And he saw the pointy things on a tray and the needles. And, and Dr. Jim said, open your mouth. And before he could run, he felt his mouth opening. And, and Dr. Jim looked inside and he was horrified by what he saw. He counted 17 cavities, two abscessed teeth. There was one impacted molar and enough tartar to fill a teaspoon. He was absolutely horrified. And before Joe could clamp his mouth shut, he had drilled four of those cavities. He had pulled two teeth after giving him, you know, various shots of Novocaine. And, and, and then he handed him a card and told him to make another appointment media, immediately. Well, Joe ran, screaming from the office, throwing the card away, telling the entire town what a monster had invaded their wonderful village. They didn't know what to do with him, so they decided to starve him out. Maybe if we just avoid him. He hurts us, we'll avoid him. But Dr. Jim and his wife distributed uh, flyers on every car, uh, car telling what would happen if they didn't take care of the decay that was within them. They threw him away. Finally, one night, they just kept, uh, kidnapped him and his wife, took him 200 miles out of town, dropped him off, never heard from him again. Went back to their wonderful little town where... Nobody ever hurt anybody. A few years later, the process had been complete. Everybody's teeth literally dropped out of their head. All of them had gums only now. The problem was that painless Percy didn't have a practice anymore. He was a dentist, you know. So he got an idea about a new business. He bought the local supermarket, now called Supermarket. <laughs> and for weeks he redid the entire store. And on opening day, all of the people came in to buy from their old friend, not knowing what to expect. But what they saw on in every aisle, on every shelf, were columns and columns of wonderful baby food <laughs> and ground-up delicacies, ground into a mix, escargot, Polish sausage, all ground up into a mix that you didn't have to chew, and they lived toothless ever after. I take time to tell you the parable because I think that's exactly what's happening to our society on a social, emotional level. I think that we are trying to please one another to the extent that nobody really has any teeth anymore. I think we are defining our relationships only on the basis of how long they will last if we are nice to one another. So we are living this life of quiet desperation. Because way down deep inside, we know that acceptance is not the same thing as love. Acceptance is not the same thing as love. And it's certainly not the same thing as loving with something stronger than love, and that is truth. 
Way down deep inside, we know that the absence of conflict is certainly not all that there is to peace. And it's certainly not all that there is to wholeness. There is a limit in Scripture as to how far we can go to please one another. If you want to read that limit, please turn with me to Romans chapter 15, verse 2. Remember, by the way, by the way, those of you who got the sermon outlines this morning, don't panic. I'm never going to make it past Roman numeral number one. Those of you who remember the text, remember Jesus said this, that we are to love one another as he loved us. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if, there's a condition, if you do as I command you. In other words, I will not love you beyond the pale of truth. I will not pretend that we have a relationship we don't have. I will not have, as a part of our relationship, the deception that comes with just wanting to get along and avoiding conflict. This says that we should please one another. Romans 15.2 says, Let us please, let each of us please his neighbor. But it gives a limit. It says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. You see, the pleasing we do should always be for someone's long-term good. And there is a time to not please people. There is a time to confront those we love because we love them. If you will read, as a matter of fact, in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, that confrontation is given a very high rating on God's evaluation system. That confrontation involves our being faithful to one another. Look at what it says. It says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. To God, a wound that comes out of love and truth is much better than a kiss that long-term will get you into trouble. Even though one is hurtful at the, for the moment and one is pleasurable for the moment, the hurt will eventuate in greater pleasure and the pleasure will eventuate in greater hurt. Now, let me talk to you very plainly. I know that you love people and I know that you have friends and I know that you care for them. I want to challenge you this morning to analyze how you care for them. Do you care more for their comfort level than you do for their soul? You see, that's the difference between a worldly friendship and a Christian friendship. A Christian friendship has as its goal 
the promotion of something higher than the friendship. Christ did not come down to lay down his life so that we would live in pleasure and always be pleased with ourselves. Christ came down and laid down his life so that we would come closer to the Father. And he said to us, I tell you, love others as I have loved you. Let me repeat that. Are you laying down your life for others in order to avoid conflict and to make them feel good? Or are you laying down your life uh, for others in a way that would bring them closer to the Father? Because you see, as both of you go closer to the Father, in 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 that triangle, you come closer together. And you see, if that is the goal... You don't have to panic that the relationship's going to break up because that's all you got. Because you can always keep in view this other relationship that is higher and more solid than this relationship just in case they can't take the truth. Let me ask you again. The question that in earlier centuries, Methodists in the same class or in the same small group ask one another. Brother, sister... How is it with your soul? Are you accepting one another or are you nurturing their soul? Are you caring for their soul? Larry Crabb uh, has uh, written some very interesting things lately. Larry Larry Crabb, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a Christian who is a professional uh, psychologist, uh, counselor, Ph.D. in clinical psychology. But he has done uh, what I think is a a very valuable, spiritually mature turnabout in the model for caring one another, caring for one another. You see, in this society, uh, when people have uh, problems that are rather disturbing, our first reaction is to refer them to a professional. You need to get some help, which means you need to go see a counselor. So tepid are our relationships with one another, so shallow our care for one another, that at any sign of something we can't handle, we truly believe that the greatest thing we can do is to get them, put them into the hands of a, of a professional. Of course, what that does for us on an emotional level is relieves us of the problem. Is say, well, you know what, I can't handle this, and so I will distance myself from this discomfort. Larry Crabb has faced the church lately and said, Church, that's not how the church was designed to be. People were designed to have other people care for them at their deepest level of need, and that is their spiritual level. We were designed to care for one another's souls. Not just our mentality, not just our emotions, not just our physical presence, our souls. And the reason that we continue to to refer people to professionals is because we are not willing to care for them in a a manner that sticks with them closer than a brother. It says says a friend is born for adversity and there's there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And so Larry Crabb says what we ought to have in all the church are elders in training. Elders who will care for one another in deep and abiding ways, who, who, who nurture one another's souls. You know, elders at Northland is not just an office. Elders in Scripture 
is something that we all should aspire to. It's a degree of Christian maturity that will take responsibility to love one another and tell one another the truth and not be frightened that we're going to lose the relationship because we've spoken the truth for long-term good. That is the kind of maturity that all of us need to be going for. Let me say something very plain to some of you this morning. You are living lives of quiet desperation, and you know that. You're living lives that seem full on the outside, and you are on empty on the inside. There are many of you who are trying to get filled up by your uh, sexual activity, and that sexual activity goes beyond the boundaries of your marriage or of a Christian marriage. And so you're going to great lengths either to hide from yourself or to justify it theologically. This amazes me when people try to do acrobatic theology in order to justify their own sinful appetite. I hear people say, well, we're married in God's eyes. Or we're not really married in God's eyes. Listen, the sovereign God governs this universe through civil law as well as through religious commandment. If the law says you're married, you're married in God's eyes. If the law says you're not married, you're not married in God's eyes. Quit fooling yourself. And quit twisting the Bible in order to justify your sin. When you do that, you're living in hell. You're living separate from God. You're trying to construct a self that will answer its own needs, and you can't. And for as long as you do that, you will remain instantaneously gratified, but profoundly empty. Some of you are trying to gratify that emptiness, fill that emptiness with achievement. And so you're going all over the place, you know, trying to, trying to, to accomplish as many things as you can. And every time you accomplish something... For five minutes you're happy and then that old emptiness comes back. It's a haunting thing. It's a haunting thing. Or you get approval from everybody. You get acceptance from everybody. But you walk around just as empty as you were before you achieved what you did. Can I say this to you? You need to nurture your soul. Because God made you never to be at peace until your soul was well. Your relationship with Him was well. And other people were loving you because they were caring for your soul. Some of you have pretty good relationships right now. You have, you're married, you know, and you, and you do have a good relationship with one another. And, 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 and the, things, the family's working okay and the kids are coming out okay and there's, and there's still that gap between you that you can't seem to bridge. Let me tell you why. Because you're not together spiritually. You're not soulmates. You're not nurturing one another uh, in the Lord. And until you do that, there'll always be that empty spot. That's why we were made. You can get along for the rest of your life. I'm not talking salvation or non-salvation here. I've been talking about salvation this whole sermon. I'm talking about what God meant for the quality of our life spiritually. 
And if you are in Christ, you are saved, but you can still be profoundly miserable for as long as you live. Until you start to face what is real and what it costs. Let me ask you this before we hear this last song. Can you ask God for the courage to not just go along with people's wishes and their direction? Can you ask God for the courage to, to look at the people that you love? And even if it will cause conflict, even if it will cause them maybe to walk away for a while, can you look at them and say, I'm afraid for you. I'm not condemning you. I'm not judging you. I'm afraid for you. The direction you're going in is harmful. And it will create great emptiness in your life. Can you accept that from someone else as a form of love? Pray with me. God, we are sobered by the price that Christ paid to bring us close to you. And most of us have not been very willing to pay that price. Most of us have not been willing to sacrifice our comfort to be emptied of our relationships so that we could speak the truth in love to someone else. But Father, we know that as long as we are not being um, uh, truthful, spiritually speaking, as long as we are not speaking Scripture, as long as we are not caring for them in a way that will nurture their soul, uh, things aren't going to get any better. Father, we know that for ourselves. Some of us have just been fooling ourselves with our sin. And as long as we, we try to do that, as long as we try to live with it and make the most pleasant life possible, we're going to be miserable. We're going to be empty. Nobody may ever know that, but that's how it's going to be. Give us courage, both to confront and to accept confrontation. We pray this in Jesus' name.